But I want to just discuss a little bit why this is a difficult story, why it's an important story, and recognize that uh, there's still probably a lot we don't understand. Let's read the worst part. Genesis 19. The sun was rising when Lot reached Zoar, and suddenly the Lord rained burning sulfur on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed them and the whole valley, along with all the people there and everything that grew on the land. But Lot's wife looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. And so we read the story, and our picture of God is Jesus Christ, right? Um, isn't this a difficult story? And uh, I think the reason it's so important is um, when we consider the, the clear words in the Bible that Jesus Christ is the clearest revelation of who God is, the perfect reflection of God's character, in contrast with some of these just overwhelming Old Testament stories, uh, the humility of God revealed by Jesus, the kindness, the forgiveness, uh, that just can easily be swept away entirely. I mean, imagine... Uh, you know, there's some person that lives in your neighborhood. You don't really know this individual, but uh, maybe you see him out uh, helping poor people and doing all kinds of good things. And so you try to find out about him. And uh, someone tells you, well, boy, that guy, he's love personified. I tell you, I've never known anyone like that. Well, tell me a little more. And you hear all these wonderful stories. And then, well, okay, there was the one time he burned down the house of those people, but they were really bad. And, uh, well, and then there was the other time, you know, you opened up the earth and they were swallowed up. But, you know, they, they had it coming. And can you see how, would you be eager to meet that neighbor if your, your mind is brewing with uh, these other uh, events? Okay, so it's important how we understand the story. And I heard a lot of this when 9-11, Katrina, and uh, because of these stories... People interpret these events in this way. When Hurricane Katrina swept through, someone said, Where was God? He was in the winds of Katrina. Just as he came against Sodom and Gomorrah, it was God who came against this American Sodom and Gomorrah, New Orleans. And everything in me wanted to say, No, that's, that's not the God that I know. But, well, how do we understand Sodom and Gomorrah? There's one thing we can't do, which we often imply, and that is the God of the Old Testament is the father. And uh, that would imply some things, you know, a, a very different character perhaps between the father and the son. And uh, I feel like there's so much evidence we can make for saying that the son of God was the God of the Old Testament. Just one verse here in describing the people that went through the Red Sea. They all were under the protection of the cloud, all passed safely through the Red Sea. In the cloud and in the sea, they were all baptized as followers of Moses. All ate the same spiritual bread, drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that went with them, and that rock was Christ himself. So we need to put Jesus, of course, not known by the name Jesus until he was born, but we need to put that same God back in the Old Testament and uh, try to grapple with this. So let's pray as we begin. Father, I would ask that uh, you just be here with each one of us. Uh, please open our minds and... Help us to see something perhaps new in this story. Help us to come closer to you. Uh, somehow may our trust be uh, restored, brought closer as we think about this terrible story. Amen. Okay, well, one interesting thing. You may not uh, remember this part about the story, but if we read back a few chapters in Genesis, Lot, who of course selfishly chose what he thought was the better land, 
and then ends up in uh, Sodom, that the king of Sodom and several other kings were captured along with Lot. So Abraham mustered his men and horses, and they went out and rescued them in battle. And um, Abraham has a conversation with the king of Sodom. And I find it pretty interesting here that um, uh, there would be this interaction between Abraham and the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Keep the loot, but give me back all my people. And Abram answered, I solemnly swear before the Lord, the Most High God, maker of heaven and earth, that I will not keep anything of yours, not even a thread or a sandal strap. Then you can never say, I am the one who made Abram rich. I will take nothing for myself. Um, I like to think that perhaps uh, this was an opportunity for the king of Sodom to perhaps learn something, not just about Abraham, but uh, about his God. And it's interesting here that Abraham rescued the king of Sodom once, And then, of course, he pled for the city a second time. So as we read on, God, remember, we talked about this last time, came and talked with Abraham. And the Lord said to himself, I will not hide from Abraham what I'm going to do. It's kind of interesting. Uh, How do we know that God said this to himself? Um, This conversation, the Lord said to himself, I'm not going to hide from Abraham what I'm going to do. And then the Lord said to Abraham, There are terrible accusations against Sodom and Gomorrah, and their sin is very great. I must go down and find out whether or not the accusations which I have heard are true. Kind of interesting. We imagine God having a pretty good knowledge of what's going on down here, and uh, this would kind of suggest, hmm, didn't really know, had to go down and check it out. Isn't this kind of like uh, other expressions we've seen? God would see the rainbow and... uh, You know, is it like a string around his finger? Oh, that's right, I'm not going to send another flood. Isn't this just kind of an expression for us? God came down to check it out. And then the two men left, the angels, and went on toward Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. And you know all the conversation. We've actually quoted this a few times so far. Abraham approached the Lord and asked, Are you really going to destroy the innocent with the guilty? If there are 50 innocent people in the city, will you destroy the whole city? Won't you spare it in order to save the 50? Surely you won't kill the innocent with the guilty. That's impossible. You can't do that. If you did, the innocent would be punished along with the guilty. That is impossible. The judge of all the earth has to act justly. And it's amazing when you go through the Bible, the people that are listed as friends of God, um, they really talk with God like a friend. When we read through the Psalms, uh, we'll read some pretty brutal stuff that David and Jeremiah said And then they're declared friends of God because when you're friends, I mean, do you hide things from a friend? Are you honest? Okay, it would seem that Abraham was very honest here. And the Lord answered, well, if I find 50 people in Sodom, I will spare the whole city for their sake. And remember, Abraham asked, well, how about if it's 40? How about 30? Uh, And Abraham went all the way down to 10. And God said, I will not destroy it if there are 10. I find it interesting. What if Abraham had kept going? Five? Four? Three, but he didn't. He stopped at 10. Um, I like Alden Thompson's comment that uh, in this little exchange, God is like a used car salesman and he gets talked down to a very low price. Okay, but they have this conversation and we have to remember what was the best that came out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot and his two daughters. And do you remember the story about how they escaped and they got Lot drunk so that they could have children and... The Moabites and the Ammonites came from this uh, incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters. And when we talked last time about the god Moloch, 
Remember the god of the Moabites who they would heat his metal hands and put the babies inside. That came from the Moabites and the Ammonites, from Lot. Well, so here's the story. The two angels come into the city. Remember, they're looking for a place to stay. Lot offers them hospitality. And before the guests went to bed, the men of Sodom surrounded the city. And I think it's significant here that it says all the men of the city, both young and old, were there. Everyone in the city. I mean, it's kind of like the flood. Remember we read where the whole world was evil and Noah was the only good man. And it really would seem that that's true, given that Noah was the only one that got on the boat with his family. And here we read that everyone is surrounding this house. They called out to Lot and asked, Where are the men who came to stay with you tonight? Bring them out to us. The men of Sodom wanted to have sex with them. Lot went outside and closed the door behind him. He said to them, Friends, I beg you, don't do such a wicked thing. And this is uh, unthinkable to us what Lot said. Look, I have two daughters who are still virgins. Let me bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want with them. And was this a different time and culture uh, or what? And so Lot offers him his own daughters. But don't do anything to these men. They are guests in my home and I must protect them. But they said, get out of our way, you foreigner. Who are you to tell us what to do? Out of our way or we will treat you worse than them. They pushed Lot back and moved up to break down the door. But the two men inside reached out, pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck all the men outside with blindness so that they couldn't find the door. The two men said to Lot, if you have anyone else here, sons, daughters, sons-in-laws, or any other relatives living in the city, get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The Lord has heard the terrible accusations against these people and has sent us to destroy Sodom. It's a little surprising what happens next. Lot rushed out to tell his daughter's fiancés, quick, get out of the city. The Lord is about to destroy it. But the young men thought he was only joking. At dawn, the next morning, I mean, they were up all night. What were they doing with the angels this whole time? The next morning, the angels became insistent. I mean, it seems like they're reluctant to leave. Hurry, they said to Lot. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Get out right now, or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. When Lot still hesitated, that's how difficult it is to get him out of the city. The angels seized his hand and the hands of his wife and two daughters. I mean, they kind of forcibly are dragging them out of the city and rushed them to safety outside the city for the Lord was merciful. When they were safely out of the city, one of the angels ordered, run for your lives and don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. And then, of course, the verse we open the Bible study with, burning sulfur. And Lot's wife turned back and was turned into a pillar of salt. How are you destroyed by looking at something? Um, what happened there? So there's the story. Now, um, what is surprising is, I mean, this is uh, horrible, the, the description of the people um, here in Sodom. But remember our principle of biblical interpretation is we take the whole Bible, not just a little here, a little there, one story, uh, we come to every story armed as much as possible with the entire Bible. And so we skip ahead to the book of Ezekiel, which is describing how horrible Judah was. Worse than Sodom, God would say. And uh, God compared Judah to having two sisters. So 
So the sister Sodom and Samaria, representing Israel. Okay, and this is how God would describe Sodom. This is what your sister Sodom has done wrong. Uh, this is the clearest statement in the Bible of what Sodom did wrong. Now, based on just reading the story, uh, we might expect a real strong statement about uh, the men's desires around the house. That's why it's a little surprising. Uh, the clearest text in the Bible about the sin of Sodom is this. She and her daughters were proud that they had plenty of food and had peace and security. They didn't help the poor and the needy. They were arrogant and did disgusting things in front of me. Certainly they did. So I did away with them when I saw this. Uh, interesting here that the description is they had plenty of food, they were arrogant, and they didn't help the poor and the needy. Um, we don't often incorporate that into our understanding of the wickedness of Sodom. And it's kind of like so many things that are very easy. We uh, see the speck in our brother's eye and we don't see the beam in our own eye. Uh, we, of course, and rightly so, I mean, you can't minimize the desire here of a group of people uh, to sexually molest someone, but it's easy to overlook perhaps the, the greed and the lack of willingness to help the poor and the needy, which is very much at the heart and center of the sin of Sodom. And, and we'll come back to this, but let me just finish the passage here in Ezekiel. Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, didn't commit half the sins you did. You have done more disgusting things than they ever did. Remember, God is talking to Judah. Because of all the disgusting things that you have done, you make your sisters look innocent. Make Sodom look innocent? You will have to suffer disgrace because you accused your sisters, yet your sins are more disgusting than theirs. Yet God never burned down Jerusalem with fire. They look like they are innocent compared to you. Be ashamed of yourself and suffer disgrace because you have made your sisters look like they are innocent. And uh, here this uh, puzzles me at the end. I will restore the fortunes of Sodom. Have you read that? I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and Samaria and her daughters. I will also restore your fortune, Judah, along with theirs. Uh, interesting to think about what that might mean. But coming back here to this uh, passage, you know, we think about, uh, I'm sure you all saw the story, was it last week at this uh, high school in uh, Richmond where um, this um, teenage girl was uh, raped for about two hours while dozens of people walked around, took pictures, no one called the police, and uh, doesn't that evoke memories back to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? And it should. Uh, I found this uh, just read yesterday on CNN about will the gawkers go free? For two hours, they watched the alleged gang rape of a 15-year-old girl outside their high school home dance. They pointed, they laughed, they took pictures, say investigators. But no one among the approximately two dozen gawkers called the police. And now people are upset because you're not allowed to charge someone. It is a crime not to report uh, something like this, but because the person was 15 and not 14, they can't charge the uh, gawkers. And uh, the reason I bring this up is um, things that are going on in the world, yes, it should evoke uh, very powerful images of how depraved um, Sodom was, okay? But uh, often in Christianity, we, we just tend to condemn those kinds of things. And that the sin of Sodom here, which is that they had plenty of food and peace and they didn't help the poor and the needy. And if you just look through the Bible, for example, and you look for a number of verses that comment about homosexuality, there are 
probably six at the most. If you count the number of verses, and maybe this is not a good way to do theology, counting verses, but if you just count the number of verses that mention helping the poor and the needy and greed, we're on the order of thousands. Okay, but yet Christianity often tends to em emphasize, have you seen people carrying these kinds of signs around? I mean, it would seem to some that homosexuality is the only issue for Christianity. But if we're just kind of doing what does the Bible emphasize and talk about, my goodness, greed and not helping those who are needy uh, is much, much more uh, the emphasis. So I guess if we were spending 99% of our time talking about, hey, we should be helping the outcasts of society, and every once in a while... This came up, obviously not in this way, when Christianity so much has the face of condemnatory attitude towards certain people in society, that is not the, the picture, the balanced picture that the Bible brings. I had to, well, I didn't laugh, but I was kind of shocked one time I saw someone carrying a sign like this and it had a verse in Leviticus uh, quoting this about homosexuality. Well, if you read on just a few chapters in Leviticus, um, it says that uh, gluttonous children should be stoned to death. And the person holding this sign was a little bit overweight, and I couldn't help thinking that, um, you know, if you're going to take that, you better carry it all the way through. So um, anyway, that's, that's a small point on Sodom and Gomorrah. I want to bring up, I actually have five different things, and I realize now I'm only going to get through three of them, um, but some different uh, perspectives on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The first is, which I think we often assume, that, well, they crossed a line, and God had to punish them. Um, what's a little bit difficult, though, about taking that, that line of thought all the way through the Bible is we'll come to stories like Uzzah, who touched the ark, to steady the ark as it was falling. Now, um, is that worse than uh, Hitler? Couldn't we make a long list of mass murderers and people? Well, Uzzah's sin was worse. Uh, is that how we understand why things happen to people at some time? What about Ananias and Sapphira? If you sell your land, you only get half of it to the church. In God's eyes, that's worse than, uh, I don't know, Auschwitz or something. I mean, that doesn't, doesn't make sense. Okay, is it just a line that is crossed? I mean, what about the story that happened last week uh, with that girl? Did it just not rise to the same level as what we see in Sodom and Gomorrah? And I think what we see in the Bible is God, on several occasions, needing to intervene because of the, the desperate need of the circumstance. I mean, I see this as a parent, for example. Maybe your child uh, even rebelliously disobeys and uh, runs out into the street. Well, you're going to do that. You're going to treat that much more severely, okay, with a much greater punishment than maybe you would even your child when they are much more severely rebelling against your authority because one has such a, a devastating consequence. And, of course, we have all these verses that suggest that Sodom wasn't the worst place that has ever been on planet Earth. Here, God talking in Jeremiah about Sodom. I have seen the prophets in Jerusalem, and they do even worse. They commit adultery and tell lies. They help people to do wrong so that no one stops doing what is evil. To me, they are all as bad as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, of course, Jesus came along, and he was rejected in many towns, and uh, I want to talk about this verse later, but just to make the one point for now, and he would say, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to heaven? No, you will be, go down to hell. If the miracles that had been worked in you had been worked in Sodom, it would still be there today. I can guarantee that Judgment Day will be better for Sodom than for you. But yet Capernaum was never consumed by fire. Remember, the disciples wanted to. 
And Jesus rebuked them strongly um, for that attitude. Okay, so the, I think the just purely to punish uh, does, uh, in, in my understanding, not accurately uh, paint the picture of what really happened in Sodom. So let's talk about another uh, possibility. Okay, and I like uh, much of this, which is that what happened here, it was a protective action on God's part under a very unusual and desperate circumstance, and there simply was no other way to keep the world from falling back into complete rebellion, back to the pre-flood state. So God had to intervene um, as a protective action. Okay, And I think um, that makes a lot of sense, but I would like to add perhaps another dimension to this. We'll call it a third point here, and that is to discuss the fire. Remember when we read something like this, we have to take the whole Bible. What does the whole Bible say about fire and sulfur? Okay, the New Testament would suggest there is something to learn about Sodom and Gomorrah. In 2 Peter, Peter would say, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed them by burning them to ashes. He made those cities an example to ungodly people of what is going to happen to them. Okay, what are we supposed to learn about uh, perhaps an end-time destruction of the wicked from Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, I think it suggests there is something important. And in Jude, don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighborhood towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Okay, what do we learn about the eternal fire from Sodom and Gomorrah? And here's a scary verse. All the scary verses are not in the Old Testament. This is one of the scariest in the whole Bible. The third angel's message in Revelation 14, talking about this eternal fire. The third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Okay, here's the key point. He will be tormented with burning sulfur. Same thing. In the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Okay, uh, we'll spend a lot of time on this verse talking about what is God's wrath, and there are lots of interesting things. But let's think here burning sulfur. Um, this brings us back to Sodom and Gomorrah. What is the burning sulfur? Well, it's interesting. Sulfur, you know, you've heard of fire and brimstone sermons. Um, well, it's the same words, burning sulfur, fire and brimstone. Okay, and it's interesting here in the Greek, sulfur, the Greek is thion. Okay, the neutered form of this is thios. And what's interesting here, what does that mean? Divine, divinity, Godhead. We get the word theology from this. Okay, and so we could perhaps more accurately refer to this sulfur as divine incense or holy fire. Okay, so what was this fire that consumed Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, of course, God on, I mean, I had to cut out so many verses on here just so we'd be able to get through, but God is a consuming fire. And Daniel, we read this, he's a flaming fire. Does that mean God is a literal fire? In Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. What does it mean that God is a consuming fire? Let's just go back and review what the Bible has to say about fire. Okay, who was it that talked to Moses at the burning bush? Um, we'll try to make the point when we get there that that was the Son of God. 
talking to Moses in fire. And I love the kids' video that we have that describes this whole thing. It's really good. And after God leaves, Moses goes over and picks a leaf from the bush. Okay, was it singed? Was it burned? No, God's presence so often as a consuming fire, but it does not seem destructive uh, to plants. Okay, remember God came down on Mount Sinai as a fire. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the glory of the Lord appeared to the Israelites like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. Okay, was there a huge forest fire that broke out as God comes down on Mount Sinai? Okay, no, no description of that, but it was like a fire. And God would say to Moses, you cannot look directly at my face, for no one can see me and live. Okay, does that mean if you peek and look at God that he would have to do something to you? Or is this describing something natural that happens? Um, well, we'll have to get uh, to head to Isaiah, which we will hear in just a few slides. What does that mean? You can't look directly at my face. And then we read on. Moses spoke face to face with God just as a man speaks with a friend. And when Moses came out from the temple, or when he went into the tent, tent of the Lord's presence to speak with the Lord, he would take the veil off. And when he came out, he would tell the people of Israel everything that he had been commanded to say. And they would see that his face was shining. Hey, he's talking with God. His face was shining. Okay, were these third-degree burns? What is radiating from Moses' face? And then he would put the veil back on, and we read later that the reason he put the veil on is the people felt so uncomfortable seeing this radiated glory of God's presence in the face of Moses that they asked him, hey, can you please put a veil over your face? We're, we're a little bit distressed um, seeing that. Okay, that's interesting to consider. Now, this is, I think, just a spectacular description Perhaps it gives uh, very important insights into what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Nadab and Abihu, another difficult story. They disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire. Here's what, here's what happened to them. So fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up. And they died there before the Lord. And I'm glad the story continues because Moses called for Aaron's cousins and he said to them, Come forward and carry away the bodies of your relatives from in front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. And imagine you are Aaron's cousins and you have to go in and carry the bodies out. What would you anticipate? You've just told that a fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up. What would you expect to find? Left. Okay, here's what happened. They went in, they came forward and picked them up by their garments and carried them out of the camp. And then we read that they burned their bodies outside the camp. Okay, so whatever this is, this fire, this glory of God's presence, uh, it was destructive to Nadab and Abihu, but it didn't consume their clothes, and it didn't seem to consume their bodies. Okay, we read this a few weeks ago about Lucifer, who once dwelled in God's presence in Ezekiel 28, where God would say, I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. What are stones of fire? Again, he walked in God's very presence, unharmed. Okay, and then the description goes on to describe what's going to happen to Satan. And I, and I find this really amazing. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trade. So I brought fire from within you and it consumed you. I let it burn you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. And 
what, what I think we could make a very good case is that the destructive part, the consuming part, comes from within, it comes from sin and rebellion and distrust against God, rather than uh, an aggression, an external penalty or punishment imposed by God. The fire comes from within and consumes him. Okay, and I think here, this story of Isaiah, I think is very helpful. Isaiah, like all these other people, came into God's presence. And notice what he experienced in God's presence. I saw the Lord. He was sitting on his throne, high and exalted, and his robe filled the whole temple. Around him, flaming creatures were standing. Each had six wings. Each creature covered its face with two wings and its body with two and used the other two for flying. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, 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 the Lord Almighty is holy. His glory fills the world. The sound of their voices made the foundation of the temple shake, and the temple itself became filled with smoke. And notice what Isaiah said. He didn't say, boy, it is so hot in here. I've got to get out. Okay, this is what he experienced in the presence of God. I said, there is no hope for me. I am doomed, because every word that passes my lips is sinful, and I live among a people whose every word is sinful, and yet with my own eyes I have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. And he was experiencing guilt. Okay, he was suffering, but it was not from a, a physical uh, brightness. And then one of the creatures flew down to me, carrying a burning coal that had been taken with the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with a burning coal. Was this a literal burning coal? And said, this has touched your lips, and now your guilt is gone, and your sins are forgiven. And then I heard the Lord say, whom shall I send? And of course, now Isaiah is ready to go and give the message. Okay, so in the presence of God, Isaiah, I mean, righteous Isaiah, uh, I think what is this is describing is in the presence of God, we see truth, truth about God, but also truth about ourselves. Truth about ourselves often is not a very pretty thing. And in that circumstance, there is distress. Okay, but uh, Isaiah... Uh, again, was given this coal symbolically and then was encouraged and he became God's prophet. So the, the contrast here between two groups of people in the presence of God, there are lots of these verses that describe two very different things that happen in God's presence. In Psalm 68, as wax melts in front of the fire, so do the wicked perish in his presence. But the righteous are glad, notice, and rejoice in his presence. They are happy and shout for joy. And in Malachi, the day is coming when proud and evil people will burn like straw. We usually read this as a literal fire. But on that day, they will burn up. There will be nothing left of them. But for you who obey me, my saving power will rise on you like the sun and bring healing like the sun's rays. You will be as free and happy as calves let out of a stall. Again, two groups of people, both uh, in God's presence. Okay, but uh, the most spectacular verse in the Bible about this is in Isaiah 33. Uh, I think this is the clearest verse on this, this whole experience. Isaiah 33:11. But the Lord says, Now I will do something and be greatly praised. Okay, notice what is destructive. Your deeds are straw that will be set on fire by your very own breath. You will be burned to ashes like thorns in a fire. Everyone, both far and near, come look at what I have done. See my mighty power. Now, notice, the sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. And notice, what's their question? Who of us can dwell with 
the consuming fire. Who of us can dwell with everlasting burnings? There is distress in God's presence. And I like that as the verse goes on, it describes, well, he who walks righteously and speaks what is right can. Okay, again, some consumed, some seem to actually be healed and experience transformation uh, in this process. And so as we come back to this uh, perhaps troubling verse, the third angel's message in Revelation 14, where all of this about God's wrath and so on, and notice the description. These people will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. Are the angels standing in the fire? Is the lamb in the fire? I mean, obviously there's some symbolism here, uh, unless we believe Jesus will actually look like like a lamb in this circumstance. Uh, Everyone is in God's presence. Okay, and the distress here is very much that. Okay, Uh, and so I would see this as a symbolic understanding rather than as a literal uh, being tortured by flames of fire. And of course, the end of the book of Revelation, the sea of glass is mixed with fire, which would suggest to me we will dwell in the presence of God who is a consuming fire for all of eternity, unharmed. Okay, the, the fire is God's intense love, truth, all the good things about God's character. And um, the description here that uh, probably a lot of you uh, who are Adventists coming to this institution are familiar with, that perhaps a unique understanding about this whole process I'll just read this in in closing about the destruction of the wicked. This is not an arbitrary, an act of arbitrary power. And that's the key point. It's not an act of arbitrary power. It's a natural process, not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The rejecters of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life. And when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. He is alienated from the life of God, Christ says. All they that hate me love death. God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the result of their own choice. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. Okay, and that's... uh, in a nutshell, how I understand what happened with Sodom. But I don't think that totally explains it. And we, I, I won't go through the other points, but if I could just mention here that I find it interesting that in Deuteronomy 29, we have this description, this is what's going to happen to you, Israel, if you reject me. And God would compare it to Sodom and Gomorrah, where the fields will be a barren waste covered with sulfur and salt, Nothing will be planted. Not even weeds will grow there. Your land will be like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboam. And then God would say, well, there are some things that the Lord our God has kept secret, but he has revealed his law. And uh, I like this verse just because I don't think we have a full understanding of what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. I think when we do, I think when we really understand the reality of what happened, uh, we'll be satisfied. We won't be troubled by this story anymore. Everything is not clear. And so I think we could say, like Job in his circumstance, uh, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And so I think our attitude in the Bible study is, let's keep reading. 
Okay, this is a troubling story. Uh, it gets better. Well, it may get worse before it gets better, but eventually it will get better uh, as we arrive at Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for um, at least the description here in the Bible. You didn't take out the difficult parts. You left them there for us to struggle with. And as we struggle with these stories, um, again, we just ask that we would be brought closer to the reality of truth. And we know that as we come closer to truth, that uh, you will look better and better. Amen. Amen.